out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of that petrol emotion because I recently spoke to their guitarist and songwriter, Raymond Gorman, to find out more about life, love, poetry and all that other groovy stuff. That Petrol Emotion has just brought out a box set on Demon Records, which is titled Every Beginning Has a Future. It's an anthology from 1984 to 1994. It features 121 tracks, over seven CDs, all the studio uh, albums and a live album, plus various B-sides remixes, and also a 52-page booklet, which has um, sleeve notes from the respected author, and journalist John Harris. Anyway, this is the interview, so after several minutes of casual but interesting chat, we get down to that um, exciting subject that was the early formative years. And after mentioning my period of the glam world, uh, Raymond tells me his. Raymond, it's over to you. Very, very similar, actually, because um, I had like a kind of classical music training. Uh, and we, like my parents weren't really into music, so we we never really had the, they never really had the radio on. So I missed out on all the kind of sixty stuff. I was born sixty one, so we didn't get a record player until I think it was like seventy three. So the first records I got were all. I mean, my first love would, would be glam as well, actually. So you, like T Rex, Bowie, uh, Roxy Music, and then you know the Sweet Gary Glitter. And, and all the sort of Chin Chapman stuff. I really, I still really love that stuff, you know, because, you know, I remember we were at school and at lunchtime, you'd have like a little transistor and we would listen to the chart rundown on Johnny Walker and we didn't we didn't even write it down and stuff, me and my brother at home as well. So it was a really kind of great time because it was miserable black and white world growing up and then we had the, the troubles kicking off as well. So I think it kind of saved me actually having these fantastical glam creatures, you know, that seem to come from another planet. Yeah. So I think they kind of take you out of your environment, you know, and I was always a bit of a dreamer, a bit of a kind of, you know, I was always living in my head basically just to kind of escape, a, I suppose, the mundanity of the whole situation where I was living, you know. So it was a great escape. I mean, it probably saved me really, to be honest. Yeah, so well, I think that that kind of the the chart countdown on a Sunday evening was such a highlight, and and then top of the pops on a Thursday was also another highlight. And seeing people like Alice Cooper doing schools out just felt such a sort of moment. And even the Osmonds doing Absolutely. crazy horses seemed incredible. Yeah, there was always yeah. Well, if you look back now, it's probably what you thought was the golden time. If you look at the charts from the early seventies up until about seventy five, I would say it was pretty brilliant because you had all the glam stuff. You had like all really great soul, like black black music from America, and then you had like the beginnings of reggae and and ska and stuff as well. So it was a really great and, and things could get in. You know, you know yourself like you something that was about off the wall or whatever could get into the charts. You know, just just be, just by pure coincidence, really. Yes, coupled with a few strange novelty songs by Teddy Savalas and um, yeah, Benny well, we Hills. Yeah, we could do without all those. <laughs> we could do without all those. But I remember, you know, you get like, I remember one of the first LPs, like I was like, you know, one of those K-Tel uh, kind of greatest hits or whatever. And and the hit rate on it is pretty good. It's still pretty good. I remember one had in particular, I would say three quarters of it was great. 
Yes, well, I, I can, you know, I remember my parents are getting, well, it's interesting you mentioned not having a record player, because my parents, we came from the countryside in East Anglia, and they're very working class, and um, they were the generation that never borrowed money. So if they wanted something, they would, you know, have to work, 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 and then buy it. And and I think when they got married in the late 50s, they kind of sold everything, and they just kind of, the, the including the record player that my dad had, and that got introduced in the sort of the, the early, mid-70s, with a few records that they bought which were quite shockingly bad like they were really into bad country and western actually um <laughs> <laughs> well, my... everything everything in our house was like my mum started doing if you remember case catalog yes like we started getting everything from case catalog i mean my first guitar and amplifier was from case catalog it was a really it wasn't a great guitar obviously but it um it was a hundred quid and i was able to pay it off a pound a week uh, and I had a paper round to pay it off so that's how I did it you know so I did one pound a week for a hundred weeks to pay it off and then I because um, I gave I was as I said to you I was uh, kind of classically trained pianist but I was kind of like it's kind of like about like a robot really you know they put the music down and you play it or whatever but as far as I remember I don't remember really sitting down afterwards and trying to work out anything and then the teacher was an epileptic and he f one day he fell over the top of me and he pinned me down to the piano. I was only like eight or nine or something. And he pinned me down. The I thought he was dead. And so I was there like shaking for about 20 minutes. And then I managed to extricate myself and sort of ran down into the park. And I told my mum that he <laughs> moved away, obviously, because, you know, I was just too young to deal with the whole sort of trauma of it. And then my mum met the teacher a few weeks later and he kind of explained what happened. And they dealt with it really badly, you know, instead of going back to see him when he was back normal again and trying to sort of settle the whole situation, I ended up, I gave up piano, basically. I went, I did go to another teacher for a while, but I, I'd lost interest. So whenever I wanted to play guitar, my parents were like, no, will you give up piano? I was like, really? I don't think so. That's not how it was. So I had to kind of, so I basically bought a guitar and I basically taught myself. Yes. My God, I was just about to give up. I, thought, I was just about, well, I wasn't about to give up, but I was... I was kind of playing away by myself, but, you know, that was the kind of era of like sort of Jimi Hendrix and the guitar heroes and Rory Gallagher, people like that. And I knew I was never going to be that good, you know what I mean? No matter how much I practiced or whatever, but then punk came along and that was just fantastic because, you know, really it was, you know, three chords and anybody can do it, but, you know, you have to have something to say and, yes. and I had loads to say, obviously. So that was good for me. The one thing that we, our community was particularly big on was football and sport. Did your, yeah. did that sort of circle into your life at all? Yeah, I mean, before, before music, I was obsessed with football, really. And I mean, I played, like both myself and Damien, Damien O'Neill, we, we both played in the kind of the best football team in Derry. Right. And I could have taken that quite seriously up until I was about 15 and then started smoking, you know, smoking and chasing after girls and stuff. And I, I just, you know, I, I kind of lost interest a bit. When, especially as music had sort of become more prominent in my life. So, you know, I still love playing football and I really regret uh, whenever I came over here, I was 22, 23, and kind of stopped doing sports when I came over here. And I really regret it because when I was in Derry, you know, people would phone you up all the time. Uh, you know, they're one short for a five a side. So I'd be just playing all the time. So even though you were out and carousing and boozing and doing whatever, 
you know, you'd, you'd wake up the next day and you'd go and play football and you'd sweat it all out and you'd feel fantastic again. And I, yes. I, I really, I missed that whenever I came over here because I just didn't know enough people who were sporty like that over here. No, it was it was not a good time. But I was, you know, it was George Best. I was obsessed with George Best. And um, everybody was. I had a pair of George Best. Did you have George Best boots? I yes, George I have got a pair of. Well, I had a pair of George Best boots that I've got. Oh, a, stylo was it? Or stylo something? with the little kind of line yeah, and yeah. there's a little picture. They were of great. I, I loved them because they were, you know, normally you know the boots around that time were pretty horrible, especially when you compare them to what the players wear now. But the George Best ones were quite sleek and stylish, you know. Yeah. And I actually played well in them as well. So it was, yeah, that was a great thing. You were chatting. Yeah, best, best, I mean, he was, everybody loved George Best, you know. Yeah, if you got yeah, yeah. were our age, you know, he was he was the business. And I still but, I still put on the Belfast Boy and listen to that with great excitement because it still has that kind of drive to it. I don't know if you know the song, but um, the Belfast Boy, you're just a kid from Ireland. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, that's such a great song. Have a listen to it later. It will just blow your mind. You know, you'll want to do little had, keep it keep it up. <laughs> yeah, I had because I was a, like I I supported Manchester United first and George Best obviously, and I had all this memorabilia and then I, I I don't know what happened. I swapped it with this guy and he and he kind of ripped me off, you know. And then I had this uncle and he he went to Leeds one time to Leeds United, and then he came back and he. And he really was on my case to, to change my team to Leeds United. And I ended up doing it for a while. And it was just sheer kind of peer pressure, you know, and, and because he was the youngest, he was the youngest in my mom's family. So he was, you know, he was about, I think he was about 16, 17 years younger than my mom. So he, he right. was kind of closer to my age, really. But, he, you know, and he really bullied me into doing it. So I unfortunately supported Leeds for a few years. And then I kind of gave up on them because... Number one, everybody hated them with good reason, probably as well. And then yes. I went back to Manchester United again, and I've supported Manchester United now after that since about the late seventies, there, like no, sort of early eighties, mid eighties again. Yeah, it was painful because once I when I started supporting them, that was when they were dreadful and they got relegated. Yeah, but then that, that was my that was my first love. And to be honest, everyone in our family liked Ipswich, which would be so much better. But I had to go through the relegation of Man United. So um, yeah, but yeah. they were good Ipswich around that time, weren't they? They, they were very. Boxing, they were yeah. they were always second or third to Leeds yeah. or Liverpool. You know, so a good um, team. But I remember what, what was it? Is it Beatty? What was the guy Beatty? Kevin Beatty was their yeah. kind of left back. He Do was, you remember that story about him? Somebody told me recently, like you know, before he became a footballer, he had he didn't even have a pair of shoes at one time. Somebody had lent him a pair of shoes. That's how poor he was. And then he obviously became, you know, quite well-known footballer and stuff. What an amazing story. I mean, that's what, 1973, 74, 75? Well, I remember, God, this is slightly off the track, but let's just, I remember Derek Dugan talking, he was Wolves. He said, yeah, well, Wolves, if, you, if, you haven't got, if you haven't got a football, you can just get some rags together and then play with that instead. And, and you think, I'm sure I haven't made that story up. I, I'm sure. No, no, that's true. That's true. Yeah. Well, you know the story about Best. He used to play with like a tennis ball, and yeah. it was a free for all. So you'd have maybe thirty-five people playing, and he, he, he could, he held it. You know, he had the ball, and nobody could get it. Thirty-five people couldn't get it off him. You know, that's how good he was. Yeah. So it and those was... Brazilians as well. You know, they grew up playing on their bare feet. So you know, that's, that's why that, so that, that's what gave them ball control. But it was kind of strange because, um, yeah, it was that kind of that sort of world. Gee. So, so what was your? Yeah, I love talking about football from the seventies. Um, well, what well, we we did actually. I mean, we, we kind of preempted. You know, because you know, like by about nineteen ninety, whenever, but just before the Brit pop era. 
and the football thing sort of became really trendy. But we were we were talking about football, you know, in the early days of Pedrals as well. And I mean, because you know, the, the magazine, the fanzine, uh, when Saturday, comes, yes, my brother yes, still gets that undertone song. Yes, I remember. Just as we were starting the Pedrals, the guy from uh, that did when Saturday comes was getting in touch with John O'Neill. You know, to say, is it okay? You know, we're we're using this title, and of course, he was really happy because he's a football fan as well. Yes, so that was that was quite that, yeah, it was good. And my first World Cup was seventy four, and that's why I loved Johan Cruyff and the color orange ever since. Yeah, that was a great team. But mine was the first first time I ever my first uh, fantastic final was seventy, and I actually was at this kind of rich uh, relatives house and they had a colour TV so it was the first time I ever saw a colour TV as well so to see that match in Technicolor when it was such a brilliant game as well was you know it's really a bad, that, that's something I'll never forget you know Yes I think our colour telly happened in 72 with the Olympics and that was exciting just like we we were amazed <laughs> Yeah no of course yeah because remember watching snooker in the early, again, black and white in the early days <laughs> Yes I know it was all very it was a bit weird I, now. I do remember that I do remember Dad's army. You know, we were all amazed that when the start of it begins, there's this kind of puff of smoke and there's this red smoke, and we were like, "My God, I didn't realize that was red because obviously it was black and white. It was just a <laughs> version of grey, wasn't it?" So I know, it, I know. Oh it was, my God, it was, it was kind of, and then that thing you push the telly on, wouldn't you? And then it would have to warm up for a bit, and you know, oh, it's coming on. It was always it was delayed, wasn't it? It was very delayed the telly in yeah. those days. So, so what was your first gig? What was the first gig? that you kind of went to at that stage well hardly any you know obviously in the <clears throat> in the 70s uh a lot of a lot of bands wouldn't come to ireland you know because they were uh, to the north because they were scared um but so we had the first band that i saw went over to because Derry Derry's on the border with the south even though it's in the northwest so my uncle, the same uncle who made me support Leeds for a while, he took me to see this band called Horse Lips, uh, who were like a, they were kind of like, a, they played traditional Irish songs, but they were electric. Yes. And they were great. And I mean, if you talk to anybody Irish, my age, my generation, I think nearly all of us, the first live band we we all saw would have been Horse Lips. Yeah. Can I and just they were wait, great. Wait. So I just did an interview last week with somebody and they mentioned this band and I was like, I've never heard of them before, actually. And it's like, who the hell are horse slips? So they, 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 they basically updated a lot of old, really old sort of traditional airs and stuff. And they're great. I mean, they were really great musicians. They were young. You know, they look great as well. So, they, you know, they look like a like a normal, they look like a band of the time, but they, you know, and they had electric guitars and drums and bass, blah, blah, blah. Yes. But they had this kind of, so they actually did very very well in America. I don't think, like. I mean, a lot of like a lot of people I, uh, of our generation would know them. Yeah, because it was it was uh, it was Rodney from the Cassandra Complex who became who went to Leeds and became that electro band yeah, which I is still Rodney. going. And he said, "Horse Lips were the the band that he first saw as well." So yeah, because they they would have played around. I mean, apart from that, we would just would have had show bands. We we had it was a, like Ireland would have had this show band circuit, and. You know, we would go to these dances on a a Thursday night or whatever, and these show bands they were really, really ultra professional. You know, they could they could play like whatever was on the charts, and they they would do a really good job usually. You know, so that was what we got. Yes, and what was that? Oh God, it was a horrendous story. But what was the band that kind of? 
got murdered on, on the border who was a show band who were completely oh my god the miami show band terrible my god you don't you don't want to read the details of it i mean it's just horrendous and the thing about them the thing that's even worse about that is because they were like a mix of religions they, they were you know they, they were protestant catholics and like a lot of musicians you know through the ages they didn't care about religion you know what i mean but it was just that time was so horrendous and I mean, the singer got he got shot fifty six times in the face. You just think there's some, and he was a very good looking kid as well. So you just think whoever did that, they had some serious uh, issues. Let's just say he's awful. So yeah, so I mean, you know, the Miami they they were, you know, they could command really good money. They played to thousands of people, you know, because that's all we had basically. You know, a lot of time, you know, you we would go. I mean, I never was that fussed on. I wasn't standing watching the show bands thinking oh he's playing a whatever guitar you know (laughs) i was we were just chasing girls by that stage that's all i was interested in because i was like i've got my music at home and i know what i like so you know you just listen to whatever but usually a lot of show bands they play these hits from like the late 50s you know like ronan bear if you know that song no no i don't you don't know ronan bear ronan bear love little white dove it's like a kind of, yeah, I'm sure it's like late 50s. So it was all that kind of stuff. It was kind of like a tail end of rockabilly, sort of Elvis impersonators, that sort of thing, really. Yes, because in the 80s, we all started getting into people like Christy Moore, didn't we? And 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 John Peel used to play a lot of Irish folk. Like, um... Yeah, well, I mean, Christy, like I, Christy's solo stuff, especially. I, I saw Christy play in Glastonbury in uh, 1986 when we played. And I hadn't seen anything like it because there was about, you know, it was early in the day, so it wasn't the full crowd, but there was still about, I don't know, maybe 78,000 people there. Yes. And he, he held that audience in the palm of his hand. I'd never seen anything like that before. It's extraordinary. Yes. I remember yes. seeing in the, the UEA and he came on just with the, is it Baron, Baron or Boron? Boron, Boron yeah. The, and very he, diff- he, if you ever try to play a Boron, it looks easy. It's very difficult. It's yeah, a real... Gil, yeah, and and he's great at it as well. So yeah, yes. so he, he's he, Christie's fantastic. Yes. So as the seventies progressed, did you? I mean, at sort of, I suppose, if you were born sixty one, so by seventy seven, seventy eight, you must have been coming to school leaving age at this stage. Yeah, I, I did my I, I did my O levels and did really well, and then I did my A levels, and and during the A levels. At that two year period, that's when you know punk happened, and I got really, really into music, and I kind of lost interest in my studies. I still managed to, to do enough to get to university, so I went to university, uh, up in the north of Ireland. Uh, this uh, was called the New University of Ulster. It's kind of more or less gone now. Yeah. So I went there, and it was only thirty five miles up the road, but it was completely different from Derry because there was no soldiers there, and there was no police or anything i mean it was like paradise and it's by the sea as well so i had i kind of in my during my time in Derry, you know it was very restrictive you couldn't really go anywhere you know if you stayed out late your mom would be worried all the time so i kind of had all this pent up frustration and energy and then when i went to university i went about mad for a while you know and kind of sowed my wild oats but it was great and then i met uh like-minded people there as well who were all into music all my friends would have been all you know people who were into the same kind of music so that was yes. a great time and so then I did. came back to Derry after that and that's when I 
connected with John O'Neill and we started the Pedrals. But I'd been yeah. at school. Like I, I was friends with Damien. Me and Damien were at primary school together. So I know Damien since I was four. And whenever he was in the undertones, you know, we'd, we'd see him in the, I'd see him in the pub and I'd always be asking him questions, you know, about like meeting the Clash and playing this, going on tour in America, you know, recording. So I was always keen to find out what was going on and stuff, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And just on that university front, because, you know, that, that was the period that you would get a grant. So you didn't even have yeah. to end up with a, a debt. And and also, yeah, you're right. It does give a lot of people that chance to, um, I suppose, just kind of sort of create a, almost a new identity really isn't it because yeah, no, no one no one no one knows your history and and also you yeah. like you said so did you get people and students from all over the country or all over yeah, yeah. well there, there would have been people from all over the uk it was uh and and from the some from the south of ireland as well so it was a good mix but it was it was quite a small university so it was actually quite nice yeah. It wasn't too big, so you kind of did. You kind of knew everybody, you know. And then some bands would come. I mean, we were lucky to see uh, Dexys Midnight Runners came wow. uh, just after Dance Dance came out, and we all had Dance Dance, so we knew them. So we were telling everybody, "Go to this gig, go to this gig." It was fifty p to get in, I think. Proper so that- student prices at that time, and they but the only fifty people turned up. But they right. played. They played like there was fifty thousand there. I mean, they, they gave one of the greatest shows I've ever seen. One of the best gigs I've ever seen. Still, they were just you know they were they were ready. They were they were ready to go. And then like Gino was number one about eight nine weeks later. Right. So that was just before. And I, yeah, I got to meet Kevin and stuff. Yeah, I subsequently met him years later because he, he liked the Petrels as well. He used to come and see us. And Kevin's the only person I've ever asked for an autograph ever. <laughs> <laughs> and it was inspirational. I mean, it, it was it was really the key for me to think I've got to try and get into a band. I've got to try and do music because this is a you know that what I saw them doing. And I mean, I know they weren't really again like they weren't obviously a kind of heavy guitar band, but just the way, just the the feeling I got from that gig, I thought this is it. You know, I want to do that. Yes, that's quite nice. I did an interview with Helen O'Hara um, last week. She's got a All new right. book out, and she All joins right. the band for the second album, and then yeah, you know, yeah, the third one. It's amazing. And then she goes on to work with Tanita Tickerman and various other people, which is quite amazing. So, yeah, oh, no, she's great. Yeah, when she was she was Kevin's partner for a while as well, wasn't she? Yes, they were. They were a couple, but they were yeah, a couple she, for a while, weren't they? She, she was, yeah, she'd gone to university doing kind of classical music and then had that choice, you know, either do Dexies or become part of a kind of orchestra. And she took Dexies, which was, um, yeah. The right path. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know, the classic years, really, wasn't it? Yeah, that Searching for the Young Soul Rebels, which was the first album, is just amazing. It's still amazing. So, um, yeah. Yeah, you no, know, great, great records, great records. So during the 80s, which is an interesting period, because, you know, 70, 79, Thatcher gets in, then we had the Falkland War, then we had um, Greenham Common, the Miners' Strike. Then towards the mid-80s, it was Red Wedge and everything was getting very political. So this is where, you know, the, the that petrol emotion starts to emerge, isn't it, during the kind of glorious 80s. And also, for me, between 83 to 87 is the years of the Smiths. That was a huge chapter in my life, obviously. So what was it like for you during that kind of moment where you started to or the band started to be you know become a well, John, sorry sorry go ahead 
No, uh, well, what was it like when, you know, the band started to become a unit and you started to bring it together? Because obviously there was the undertones, but that had stopped. And yeah, then... well, when I met John, he, you know, the undertones had broken up and he was kind of down in the dumps, you know. So how it started was we became friends. We just playing records, him and me and a friend of ours, Mickey, Mickey Rennie. And then we got the chance to do a cl- like a club night, like, like old old school disco, basically. At this, at the kind of prime venue and in Derry, which was called the venue, and you know, it had a really nice setup, nice decks and everything. So we, we used to get it. We we would um, get together a couple of nights a week, and we would sort of get like a playlist together. You know, we'd actually we we would sort of listen and say, well, what records go together? A bit like what they do now, but they would just kind of blend them together. Whereas then we just wrote everything down and we put them on. So we started this club night, and it became quite popular. Uh, amongst alternative people in Derry, which there wasn't that many, to be honest. You know, you're talking about maybe a hundred at most, but it became like almost like a religion for those people because there was nobody else was playing these records. So, you know, they flocked to our club and John kind of got his enthusiasm back. And at that time I was playing in another local band called Bam Bam and the Colin. Right. Uh, So... Once I'd finished university, I kind of almost because I couldn't at university as much as much fun as I had, I could never find anybody to kind of the right people to sort of start a band with. Um, so I kind of almost given up in a way, and then all of a sudden I'm in Bam Bam and the Colin playing locally all the time, and then John asks me to uh, if I wanted to start working with him as well on his new project because he got his enthusiasm back. So it was an amazing time for me. I mean. From growing up in Derry and feeling like I just wanted to get out of it the whole time I was kind of growing up my adolescence, teenage years. And then coming back after university and having like a year and a half there, probably one of the happiest times of my life, really kind of carefree and loads of great things happening. Loads of great people I met as well. And then he said, we need to go, you know, if we're going to make a go of this band, we need to move to London. So we moved to London in October 84. And that was quite tough. The first year in London was very tough because we didn't really know anybody and we had no money. Yes. So that was tough until we sort of started playing. So it, it seemed to take a long time for the band to get, you know, to get the other members and for, for us to get going. But it, when I look back now, you know, it's basically, it only took about eight months or something to get everybody together. I mean, then when we got Steve Mack, we had a few false starts. I mean, I was a singer for a while. And... It was hard for me to play and sing certain songs, so I knew that I had we had to get somebody, and we we needed a focal point as well. I was too, my kind of delivery was a bit too kind of melancholic or whatever. That's what right. <laughs> and I wasn't confident either. Do you know what I mean? I mean, I think if I had been given the chance, I would have got better. But I mean, it turned out we got Steve, and he was a better frontman, so that worked out okay. So on that fam- the famous single that you brought out, which is now on the C eighty five compilation with Jerry Red Records, um, this is Keen, isn't it? This yeah. was on the Pink label at that time. Yeah, because yes. what happened? Yeah, what happened was uh, like um, like Mickey Rooney, our friend Mickey Rooney. He was at college in Coventry, and he was friends with this woman called Elaine Green, who subsequently married Dick Green from Creation. So oh. she Elaine came over to Derry just before we moved to London. So she knew that we were starting a band. So she told Dick, who told Alan McGee. So Alan McGee wrote John O'Neill a letter and said, uh, I'll put a single out if you come over. 
So we, we were going over to be on the creation label. But what happened then was the Jesus Mary chain sort of, they, they put the Jesus Mary chain single out and that, that was doing quite well. And they kind of had no money. So they kept saying to us, wait, 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 you know. Yeah. And it got to the stage where we couldn't wait anymore. You know, we, we were just kind of kicking our heels and we wanted to get started. <clears throat> so the pink label were basically creations sort of rivals. They were friend, friendly rivals. So it wasn't yeah. anything too cutthroat. But so they got a lot of the bands that creation should have got but missed out on like the June Brides for example should have been on Creation as well same thing happened to them so that's how they ended up on Pink as well because Creation had no money <coughs> at the time so we went to Pink and that's how we ended up on Pink right um, yes and I think the Wolfhounds were on Pink label as well yeah the, the Wolfhounds were as, were on Pink as well yeah and we really liked the Wolfhounds we you know, we really liked them a lot so did Actually, you play the live me? actually was fantastic because they were they were dead young they were they were younger than us. They were younger than us. They were younger than the Jim Brides. Yes. I just had this amazing energy about them. I remember the first time I saw them, they just completely blew me away. And I think a lot, I think their records never really captured the, that early energy, really. I do remember John Peel playing Another Hazy Day on Another Lazy A. Yeah. I might have got that wrong, but I do. No, I no, that's, yeah, that's right. That's Because that, that first single on Pink, I think it's an EP. It's, it's a four-track EP. Yeah. Yes, it was. I just one remember. called Death Think. It was a kind of fast song called Death Think, and they looked great as well because one of the guitar players was left-handed, and the other one's right-handed. So you know, it, it just looks great on stage. The two of them, and they, they would always have their heads down, they'd be like playing away and stuff. <laughs> it looked fantastic, and then we became quite uh, friendly with Dave Callahan. Yes, uh, thereafter he he kind of hung around with our sort of extended uh, bunch of friends. There was a whole load of us around that time. We used to go out together. Did yeah, you play French you... people, Canadians, Australians, New Zealanders, was a, and loads of Irish, obviously. It was a real motley crew because a lot of people from our group in Derry followed us over here and went to work on the sites and stuff. So for a few years, there was a real mob of us. We'd all go and drink up in Camden. Yes. In and I know a few, talking to a few Australian and New Zealand bands, they'd often sort of think, right, a bit like you, right, we need to go to London, squat in London. So there was kind of, I think, kind of scenes that started to develop around. Yeah, well, it was easy to get squats because like our flat wasn't actually a squat, but uh, along the same corridor, Damien and Steve, they they got another flat and, and they squatted in there. And then some other friends, for at one stage, there was about five flats that were squatted in our in our block and it was good because these people were you know some of these people were like paint, paint, painters and decorators and stuff so they'd do up the flat it wasn't like you know they moved in and it was just a whole a horrible yes. mess you know they they really took care of these properties you know yeah that may, it's an amazing time did you play at any of the alan mcgee nights like the living room and any of those that kind was of just stuff? that was just before we came but we, they, they did like dick did set up the first because we we had this woman called Mel for a while, this young woman, uh, as a singer for uh, for one gig. So she played a gig we did in, in Islington. Uh, I'm going to forget the name of the pub now, but I think maybe that was the sort of tail end of creation, putting on gigs. But I think they, they kind of were winding that down. So we must out on the living room. So we weren't right. there. That was before our. That was yeah. before we came, really. But you know, something similar. So we played this gig with this woman, Mel, and then she was too much of a kind of rock chick and didn't really work out. So that she she went, and then we got Steve a couple of months after that. Then yes. And how did you discover the American lead singer? <coughs> uh, three or four. 
friend, like three mutual friends. No, yeah, three mutual friends. He was working in this pizza restaurant called Grunts in Covent Garden. And actually, his boss was Jack D, you know, the comedian. Oh, blimey, yes. He was a manager, not his, he wasn't the boss of the whole place, but he was a general manager. And and there was this uh, English woman who was going out with one of our friends. She was living with one of our friends, Labrador Grove, where John and John O'Neill and Caroline were staying. So she they so he Steve heard about that we were looking for a singer through them and he auditioned and we weren't sure about him at first. So he had to do I think he did like a couple of different I think he did like two, you know, we, we rehearsed them twice before we sort of said yes. And like John O'Neill was really keen on him. He thought, yeah, he's going to work. But the rest of us weren't really sure. And I would say it took him about six months to become really good. I think he, yes. wasn't, he wasn't great to start off with, but he kind of willed himself to be great. And then he became <laughs> this kind of super energetic front man who's, you know, it was really funny because I remember John in the early days, John and he'll tell them to stop moving around so much, which is seems hilarious now in, in retrospect. <laughs> yes. But his whole thing was about jumping around and stage diving and everything, you know. Even when we <laughs> reformed in 2008, he just had the most amazing energy. Because I remember we played this gig. Um, it was like a, a festival. It was the Hop Farm, I think, down in Kent somewhere. The Hop Farm Festival, we were on at like 12 o'clock midday. And... You know, you can imagine it's hard to get the crowd going, you know, at that time of day and stuff as well. But he managed it. He just gave all his energy. And I, I remember thinking, this guy's incredible, you know. <laughs> in his 40s, though, and he's still doing it, yeah. Yes, yes, we suddenly appreciate good knees and ankles, don't we, and hips. So um, at a certain age. So knees then, especially, yeah. And then as 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 the that year progressed, because then you get signed, you signed to Demon Records at this stage, don't you? In 86, yes, yeah, so we... So we were supposed to be we we're like we were looking to make an LP. So we'd done we'd done Keen and V2. There was obviously enough material. We'd been playing around. We thought we we're ready to do an LP now. So uh Rough Trade actually were gonna put it out, and then for some reason they changed their mind. So Demon came in, it was a guy called Andrew Louder. Right. Got a really great track record. He used to work for United Artists and he signed Can and the Buscocks, people like that. So he signed us to Demon for one record and that did really well. So, of course, you know, it sold, I think it sold about 30, 40,000. And obviously once the majors saw that it was selling and, you know, we looked good and the photographs and stuff. So there was a whole, um, you know, all of a sudden we were inundated with offers, you know, from the majors. Yes. Polydor 87. I know it's a golden age, isn't it? I guess with rough trade, they were probably a bit obsessed with the Smiths at that stage, trying to. Sort I, mean, out. I think maybe. Well, you, you, I don't know what happened. I mean, I mean, I always wonder what would have happened. Actually, like even with Creation, I mean, I always feel like we should have been a Creation band, really, because Alan Alan would have known what to do with us. He would have known better. What did you do. have? Did you have kind of those issues where people signed you and then would leave the company and then? The, the the rest of the management wondered like who the hell signed this lot you know it was no because well I'll tell you what happened like the, the the MD of Polydor he signed us to the Polydor for for Babel right and then unfortunately after after Babel had kind of run its course he he left to manage Paul McCartney so that's mm-hmm. when the trouble started at um, at Polydor because the guy that came in. 
They had a beef with farm manager. They had a lot of past history. So it was never going to work, you know. And we basically, he called this new guy, he was called, I can't remember his name now, but he called us into our office and we just come off as kind of quite fractious European tour. You know, it was the, you know, after Babel came out, it was obviously one of the high points of our career and we were really busy and, you know, you're in demand. So you're just away and playing all the time and doing stuff. And by the end of that year, we were just completely knackered and it was a bit of sort of fractious behavior going on and people threatening to leave as usual. Um, and this guy, this new guy, Polydor, called us into his, uh, his office and basically sort of read the riot act saying, oh, you know, I want head singles and I'm not getting them from you. You need to pull your socks up, blah, blah. So our manager went away and he found a lawyer and they found a clause to get us out. Right. And that's why that's why we ended up going to Virgin. But in retrospect, it really kill, it killed our career in America because like uh, Babel was Rolling Stone's record of the year, 1987. So we went to America to sort of promote Babel. But by the time we got there, we weren't on Polydor anymore. We were on Virgin. So Polydor weren't working the record anymore and Virgin had nothing to work with. So we were caught in the middle. Jesus, that's always yeah. a, the, the classic moment, isn't it? And then with Virgin, then Virgin were great. I can't say I can't say a bad word about Virgin. We had a, our head of our ANR, uh, Willie Richardson. You know, he's he's a fellow Irishman from the north, and he was just fantastic. I mean, you know, he, he, he would say, you know, like when we we did demos and stuff, he'd say, oh no, there's no single in there, go go away and write more. But he never, that was about it. You know, he always let us kind of do what we wanted apart from that. So I have nothing but good things to say about Virgin, actually. They were great to us, but they just couldn't get us into the top 40, you know, and I think the politics held us back, I think, definitely as well. Yeah. Especially, so especially around 88. It was that I don't know if you remember 1988 was a pretty horrible year. It was a horrible year for me personally, but it was a horrible year. It was like um, you had those actors coming on the news, and you know they would they would say Jerry Adams's words. Do you remember that? Oh God! Yeah. So our so Genius Move, that... our our first single for for Virgin Genius Move, which should have been the one to kind of push us through to the top forty. Yes, it was banned by the BBC, but it was tacitly banned because after Frankie goes to Hollywood, they knew they couldn't make a fuss about banning the record anymore. That would just give it notoriety and would sell more. So they just tacitly banned a few things because we unfortunately on the back sleeve of uh, Genius Move, there's a there was a quote from this. Uh, Irish guy called Liam Fellows, and it was like we'd seen it, and uh, and it was taken from Jerry Adams's book, but we didn't like. But our somebody, I think, it was our tour manager. He was left to uh, take this information, put it on the sleeve, and for some reason, he decided to put Jerry Adams's name on it as well. The, the quote was nothing to do with Jerry Adams, right? But because Jerry Adams's name was on it, it was just tainted immediately. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and then the record and Genius Move just kind of died. It didn't really do anything, and it's a shame. You know, we made a great video for it, which was shown on the chart show once or something, um, and that was it. So we lost a lot of momentum, and it was, I think, in people's minds as well. We put out then the Millennium, and at the time, you know, people just didn't understand that record. It was meant to be like a kind of mixtape that we loved in the van. It was about everything, you know, but people weren't ready for it. You know, some people were, I think, they were confused or. 
God knows what happened. So we, we kind of lost a lot of momentum around that time. And then John O'Neill decided that he wanted to go back to Derry as well. And that was a big, uh, that caused a lot of kind of friction because he decided to tell us that he was leaving the first night that we were, that we went to the studio to record End of the Millennium. So the, the whole recording of that was just kind of horrible. Yes, God is oh, still. Yeah. As, as a fan, you know, you always think everyone's having this great time. And you know, I think I saw you at Glastonbury. My first one was about 87. Then yeah, 87. A... We played 86. We played Glastonbury main stage, 86 and 87. They, they were really good. Both of them were really good shows. That was and then and then saw you and then and then John Peel playing Big Decision was a huge moment, wasn't it? Because you had that kind of quote from was it um, Brother D and the Collective Effort? Yeah, which Brother kind D of, the Collective Effort. Because at yeah. that stage, Peel started pulling all those stuff on Sleeping Bag Records and Def Jam. And, you know, there was all those people like Roxy Shanti and early Yeah, Public yeah, Enemy. it was a very exciting time. It was, I was more excited about kind of hip-hop and stuff around that time than it was about sort of guitar music that was happening. Yeah, I, mean, I even... I, whole, to... I mean, I hope this is not... Uh, against the kind of ethos of your whole show, but <laughs> I was never really mad about that C86 tape. Yeah, that was the, one that I the one that I loved was the C81. That's the one yeah. that I loved. It has, a, it has a track by Link song, which I always find quite amazing. Yeah. <laughs> well, it had, well, I mean, that was the sort of, that was what I liked about it. It had, you know, it kind of went from poppy stuff to like the avant-garde, you know, so it was really good. It was, yeah, it had that kind of slight post-punk vibe still, whereas um, C86... Uh, totally, it was a very creative time and people were doing, you know, it wasn't kind of Ramalama punk anymore. It was all, people were really listening to lots of different things and getting inspired by different things. It was great. Yeah, well, there's a, there's a there's an interesting film that's just come out about a band called... R Rima Rima, who only lasted 12 months and it had people like Marco Peroni, Dorothy, uh, Max Parker and um, God, another group. But they, they just put out one sort of EP and then yeah. split and then their work has been kind of reissued, well, just issued and collected and archived. And this guy's made a film which came out last year. About oh, wow. Rima. Oh, really? I don't know about that because I remember Marco was in them. I always liked Marco. Marco Peroni. I really, yes. loved, that. I really loved that Adam and the Ants first LP. I loved that. Yes, and it's an it, it is an interesting time that late seventies, early eighties because people oh, totally yeah totally you know it, it is fascinating yeah so the C eighty six is twenty two rather I'm hoping that Cherry Red Records go back because they've kind of gone they went forward with their kind of collection of eighty six to eighty seven to ninety one but hopefully they'll go to eighty five and then back again a bit further because I think it's a it's a really it really will kind of archive a decade quite nicely as good as you yeah, can. You got people like I was thinking you get people like a like a monochrome set for example who've kind of been very much overlooked and they and they were great I mean I remember like their their debut records fantastic as well. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, not a lot actually. The last, it's really funny. There's a few bands that I, I've really been kind of rediscovering. I think because you know politically, it, it really it's felt to me like 1979 all over again about the last six or seven years. So I've been listening to a lot of music from that period as well. It seems to fit perfectly, you know. Yes, absolutely. So when you you know with the end of the millennium. There's is a very eclectic mix of songs on there, aren't there? They're, 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 it's yeah. kind of there are. I mean, when you listen it's to badly it, badly sequenced. I think it's badly sequenced. It's, right. It's because uh, everything's all the best stuff is all on side one as well. 
So yeah. it's, and, and there's a couple of songs, like Vir- the only thing I could criticize Vir- uh, Virgin for, they, they made us put like two tracks on them. None of us were particularly that fond of. They were, they were basically B-sides. And they asked us to put these two tracks on and it made it a bit unwieldy, I think, as well. But I think that nobody really got a handle on it. And I think we maybe didn't explain properly. But if you can imagine, there was a lot of upheaval going on in the band at that time. You know, I mean, I, I basically had a breakdown uh, in the second part of 1988. So I, I was in a really, really bad place. Yeah. And that was to do with just you know, partying too much and and broke it up with my girlfriend. I was just kind of a loose end and I really kind of lost the plot. You know, I actually had to be uh, replaced on the tour as well. Like, the, So I, even that, you know, I'd get that Norwich gig that you said, I, I think I did. I'm not sure. What Do you know the date of it? Yes, I do. It's September the 30th, 1988. So I wonder, I say I'm not even sure I was, that might have been even when I was replaced. I was replaced for like the last four or five shows. Although my memory now, I think that might have been one of the first ones. So maybe I did play it, but I wasn't, I wasn't really in a good place at all. No. I and I had to go away and kind of recover and sort of get myself back it's a, back it's a track again. rock and roll should come with a health warning really shouldn't it because it's well, not good yeah well somebody was saying somebody's telling me about somebody's written a book and it's all the book's basically about about the mental health of musicians how you know how badly they've been treated over the years and stuff yeah i think i've got it i think it's called bodies but it might not be. yes but, yeah. bodies that's the one bodies yeah yeah i know somebody was not... suggesting that i read that because it's you know and i think like every band i mean the thing about it is if you're if you're not a very kind of someone who's really got their feet on the ground, I mean, any kind of success at all, even if it's not that big, it can really throw you, you know, and it's really odd. You know, when you're growing up, you think oh, it'll be great to be famous. But if you actually have a little bit of fame, it's quite horrible, actually, because the thing that I didn't like about it is because people know who you are, they think they know who you are just because of, you know, your public image or the way that you come across through your songs or whatever, you know, and of yes. course they don't, and they're, they're overly familiar and they kind of, you know, you, they, they almost, you almost become their property, you know, like if you're not really nice to everybody and, and, and like, you know, like I have a fantastic public persona all the time, you know, they'll, they'll become really arsy with you. And, and like I saw that, I saw I had a, saw Damien have a really kind of horrible experience uh, during the Petrels time. There was these guys used to come and see the Petrels all the time, and they they used to go and see the undertones as well. And he didn't really have much contact with them, but they would turn up and he would get them on the guest list. So one time, like, so he'd been doing this for years, say he was doing it for about four or five years. And then one time he forgot to put this guy and, and one of his friends on the guest list. And the guy started giving him, like, dogs abuse you know like really insulting them and stuff and i was there i saw this and i just couldn't believe it you know the cheek of this person you know he was getting kind of vip treatment and, and like demon didn't even know him that well do you know i mean he just knew him like casually or whatever so that was very very bizarre to see that firsthand you know yeah no, i mean most of our fans like don't get me wrong most of our fans are lovely and, and through facebook and the internet now you know i've really interacted with a lot of them and they're nearly all lovely people you know and I'm very appreciative. You know, they buy everything that we put out, and they're they're still fans, and they still ask about stuff. So yeah, really appreciative. But I think it's a double edged sword. You know, uh, being being in a band, and I think you know, if you look at most bands, you know, there's always a couple of people that are 
susceptible to drinking drugs or whatever. And if you get really, really big, I can imagine if there's nobody looking after you properly, you can really lose your way very quickly. Yeah, I know. It's it's kind of something that I've often thought about. What you know, how some people can survive and some people don't, you know. And is um yeah, if I you get if, to do your characters and I say, you look like someone like Bruce Springsteen, who's obviously was always quite a very sort of grounded person. So he he's been okay for the most part. Although reading his book, you know, he suffered from depression quite a lot as well. Yeah. And I think, you know, whenever you play live and you get that amazing buzz. The thing about it is it's quite hard to come down for it. So I think that's why a lot of us drink or take drugs or whatever, because, you know, if you're on that kind of a high, which is really fantastic, it's like, well, how do you kind of decompress and come down every night again and then get back up to do it the next night? It takes a lot out of you, you know, even like just psychically. Yeah, I'm, no, God, I could imagine. And also, as as often people say, when they do those tours, they come home often to an empty flat with an empty fridge. With, yeah, it's you know. difficult. Yeah, it's difficult. To, you know, I remember coming back, um, we were in America. We did, a, we did a month in America. It was probably my favorite tour ever. So that would have been after John and Neil left and we almost broke up and then we reconvened and we became friends again and then we started writing really, you know, we, we came up with some really great material again. So we went to America and we hadn't really been playing a lot there. So we had three records out so people knew a lot about us and they were they were ready for us and it gave us a new burst of energy it was fantastic but i came back off that tour and you know to come back to an empty flat in central london and it's a wet monday morning and you're like oh, what do you do now <laughs> it's, like, it's a real calm down Yes, it's um yeah, I could imagine there's just nothing, nothing there, is there? It's empty. But I think you know, well, as when I said to you when I had my breakdown, I mean, I, I was put in this um hospital unit, uh, and to this day, I'm not even sure where it was. I I know it's over West London somewhere. I'm, I'm not even sure what the hospital's called, but I was put in this hospital, and basically, I hadn't been sleeping, and I was I was overdoing everything. So they put give me sedatives and basically slept for about two days and immediately felt a lot better. I mean, it, it took longer to kind of get back to myself again. But nobody, I didn't get any therapy. Nobody really spoke to me, even though I was in this expensive hospital. I was able to sign myself out after four days and I wasn't really ready, you know, but, but no, I had no kind of therapy or anything after that. Nowadays, you nobody would have let that happen. Do you know what I mean? You would have had therapy. You would have been talking about it. People would have been more understanding about your situation because you couldn't. You felt like I felt like I was at my lowest ebb, but I felt like I had failed everybody. You know what I mean? Mm. I was still beating myself up. It wasn't like, you know, I, nobody really understood then. Do you know what I mean? There wasn't the understanding that there is now, thank goodness, for yes. people through well, that. It is quite um yeah that that that, that experience of um yeah but like don't get me wrong every, like I've so many other great great experiences and and really happy times you know I mean the band was going for ten years I know so, it, you it, know, it, even it, though we even though we're not really considered a success I mean I think to go for ten years and make five make set we actually made seven seven records including two live ones yeah so you know, that and I mean you know we've just put out this our box set. It is an extraordinary part. Yeah, because actually what's quite interesting, having done so many of these interviews, most bands only have five years. They have the 12 months yeah. of honeymoon, the single John Peel play, John Peel yeah. session, first album. 
you know, van around the UK, you know, doing all the little gigs, then the second album, possibly a third, but then, you know, they just had it. So five, five years seems to be a real, so 10 years is quite unbelievable. And um, for some of the people who have also been in the undertones, it's, um, it's quite, you kind of has, have done sort of some form of um, national service really, haven't you? But when, <laughs> so, but one thing I did notice with doing this is that a lot of bands did get kind of like about 87, 88, trying to remember my decades. I mean, when I go back to the Smiths, when they broke up, there was this kind of like, okay, that chapter's slightly closing. The introduction of ecstasy came along. There was suddenly that way, next wave of 16 to 18 year olds that come along and they kind of want their soundtrack and it's all kind of a bit more dance and a bit more Manchester. And like I said, ecstasy kind of changes things a bit as well. How did, totally, yeah. So you, you know, but so you, and also there's another decade and often that feels a bit like, oh, what's that all about? So when you came to do Kemma Crazy you'd also lost John at that stage was what was the kind of state of the band going into that kind of session very good very good actually because I said you so we had the end of millennium so basically uh the tail end of 1988 we had to cancel all the American shows because I was sick basically I was still in hospital um so a lot of gigs got all got cancelled and then the, the American tour got rescheduled I think it was March 89 and by then I was a bit better and I was able to do it. And we kind of, we got like, so whenever John and Neil left, Damien came on the guitar. That was a good, that was a great, a great thing, a great move. It was just seamless, you know, and it was great for me. Like me and Damien just clicked playing together as well. And then I got my friend, John Marchini, and right he actually played in the Cassandra complex with Rodney. He was Rodney's friend, so that's oh. a, there's a link there. Because yeah. like Rodney was Rodney was at the same university as me, actually. But I always thought he was a bit of a he was a bit pretentious. <laughs> <laughs> we used to kind of make fun of him. I mean, it was easy to poke fun at him because he used to dress up like a kind of gothic nun at one stage. I mean, he, he used to get beat up and stuff. Because you can imagine what Northern Ireland, you know, you're yeah, doing, you that know, would be a, that would be a hard look to pull off. Oh yeah, but I mean, he he's got some, like for some reason Rodney's always had supreme confidence, so nothing was going to uh, knock him down. But so John was actually in Germany, and John John was my like a really good friend of mine. But he'd gone to to play in the Cassandra Complex, and I asked him to join the Pedrals on bass. So John, he was a great person to come into the Pedrals at that stage because he's a really lovely person, very easygoing and good fun and always smiling. So he was a perfect person to help the rest of us all rekindle our friendship. Because, I mean, the band always has to, Pedrals always has to work as friends first. We're not yeah. we're not one of these bands that where people, you know, they don't really get on and it's just a kind of thing, you know, like work or whatever. We're a very kind of close unit. Even you know, the four of us, the four... Um, Irish members of that Pedro Mosh is still very close. I mean, Steve, we're still close with Steve, but obviously he lives in America. Yes. So we got John Marquini in, so that really helped. And then Kieran and myself had written like five really good songs each, and Damien had two or three, they had three as well. So we had a good, you know, we had really good, strong material. Again, everybody was getting excited. So when we went to do that American turn 89, it was a real, it was a real uh, bomb for us, you know, we reconnected as friends. We were having real fun. The gigs were great in America. Fans were going crazy. So then we got Scott Litt. He was going to do the record, and we went to Los Angeles to make Kimmy Crazy. So that was a really great time again, you know, because we'd been through the kind of mill, and we'd come out the other end, and it was looking really rosy again. So we went mm. to 
went and made Kelly crazy, and we thought, you know, we 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 tried to make this really like Virgin wanted a commercial record, so we so we kind of let them make this very sort of radio friendly record, and then it didn't sort of do the business either. It, it appeared, you know, people love the record, and you know, we had all the we did all the remixes and stuff, and that was all really got loads of good press and stuff, but just doesn't sell anything again, you know? So that was kind of very difficult after Kemi Crazy wasn't a hit. But then we got up for Fireproof again and we wrote better songs again. But then the reception to that, we'd kind of run our course, you know? It was just, I think it was just in this country, anywhere else, like France, we were starting to do really, really well in France and we always did well, quite well in America. So we should have, instead of, like we we like we were so dis, disheartened by the response to fireproof, even though it was number one in the in the independent charts. But it you know it, it kind of about four months after it had been put out, it was basically dead in the water. There was nothing we could do with it anymore. And Jesus. what we should have done was taken some time off because we've basically been going for like nearly ten years. Yes. Um. But then there was an Australia tour was booked, so we were really excited about that, <clears throat> and everybody was up for that again. And then that got cancelled at the 11th hour, literally the night before we were supposed to go. The promoter was dodgy and the tickets didn't come through. And that just broke broke a few of us. And we decided to pack it in. But what we should have done was just take six months off and and see how we felt then. It yeah. was, And I mean, I, I have this thing now, I think bands should never break up. You should just say, look, we're on hiatus, you know. We might come back in 10 years' time. And most bands do, don't they? They come back after 10 years. Or... Yeah, because I can't God, I can't think of it. But I know a few bands have sort of said, well, we've never said we broke up. We just haven't done anything for a long well, time. That's but... very wise. That's wise, you know. That's very you wise. Know. And to be honest, you know, um, yeah, no, it's interesting. You did have a, a change of personnel on on Fireproof with... Yeah, Brendan, uh, uh, John Marchini. Uh, unfortunately... Scott Litt did a number on John Marchini. He just wrecked his confidence, his playing. So he, he just, I think he just broke his spirit, really. You know, he really put him through the mill. Um, I've come across that with drummers. I've heard a few people say, yeah, that, and like, bizarrely um, with, um, with. Yeah, um, producers are terrible like that. It really, and bizarrely, they were kind of women drummers who just said, I just, you know, they just kept making me do the same thing until I was destroyed. And then they just got a session musician in and done it for me. But by then they'd hit the hard drugs and, you know, had left, you know, had, you know, it really did hurt them hugely. I mean, unfortunately, whenever the digital technology came in, like producers just became completely anal and they threw out all these great techniques that had been used to make all your favorite records in the 60s and 70s, you know. And what they were doing was, because I mean, like, man, pop thrill was a joy to make because it was done quickly we were all in the same room basically Hugh Jones can't say enough good things about him we it was my favorite experience ever being in the studio it was my first time properly in the studio with him yeah and he made everything a joy it was a joy to be playing he was he, he encouraged everybody he had great ideas and it, it was all done quickly and we were all in the same room and stuff. And then when we went to do Babel, it was, it was the opposite. Roly was this drummer and he was into the technology. And we kind of did, that's why we wanted to work with him. We wanted that kind of thing in our music. But what he did do was that everybody would, you would do your stuff by yourself. So you're in the, you're out in the studio playing. Everybody's in the control room. You can't hear what they're saying and you feel really self-conscious 
and it's just not as nice, you know. I mean, it's you know, unless you're a kind of studio muso who, you know, you're you're happy to do that for six, seven hours and play the same thing or whatever. But when you, if you really feel like under that amount of scrutiny as well, you're not, I don't think you're ever going to play. You're not going to have the same feel as when no, you have yeah. people in the same room with you, you know. So I can see, and then you know, a lot of producers. They became really, I think, quite anal about you know drum sounds. You know, you've heard stories about somebody you know doing a doing a bloody snare sound for like seven hours or whatever. And that happened with us as well. I just to get my nerves. You know, you'd have a whole day, nothing would get done. They were just working on the snare. Do you know what I mean? And then you hear the record now, and you think, well, it's not that great. It hasn't aged very well, hasn't it? Sounds very much of that time. Whereas you know, you're still listening to records where. You know, there was like one overhead mic for the whole band, you know, like a son, like Elvis, yes. early Elvis records or whatever. Like, why why do they still sound so good? You know what I mean? It's like, so something's been lost. Well, this marvelous technology, as good as what it is. I think what? people forget about the warmth and the spontaneity that, that gets lost a lot of time. Yeah, well, the 80s mainstream production sound, that was that Trevor Horn moment, wasn't it? That suddenly you know made it a very period piece a lot of those songs that you hear now it's like oh god that's quite great yeah that big gated snare you know kind yes. of full collins gated snare there's just and there was that tina turner dire straits you know all those yeah. people that just <laughs> yeah and i mean though i quite liked abc in places i mean there is something quite dated about that and frankie's kind of sound as well so it's a tricky number, isn't it? Yes, and there you go. So did because actually you were just there between kind of I suppose a bit like the the Seattle grunge scene and also Brit pop when you sort of called it a day. And yeah, you know you would have probably been yeah, perfect just, for Brit pop. Yeah, we just I mean we got caught up in the grunge thing, but because Steve was you know, obviously Steve was really into the whole grunge thing. He loved he loved all the sort of Seattle bands and stuff. That was where he was from. Um, and we definitely got a bit heavier around that time. But because we weren't a part of it, you know, we, we were always seen to be apart from it. We were never part of any scene, really, to, I don't know, to our detriment or credit. I don't know which it is, probably both. Yes. Um, but then, I mean, it was really funny because you think the whole time that we were going, guitar music was really not in vogue that much. Whereas whenever, as soon as we stopped, Britpop happened. Yes, and I always think, but I think I think if we had continued, we, we wouldn't have been had any association with Britpop. Obviously, I, I wonder what would have happened. Actually, would we have been reconsidered? I don't know. It's hard to say, really. But I would say we influenced. You can, I mean, I know for a fact that we influenced Blur and Radiohead. That's just two. Yeah, well, also like the, I think the, what do you call them? The Manic Street Preachers always. They name check us, and so do the super furry animals as well. There's four bands, you know, that that can always name check us. Well, the thing is, all those people who were in those bands from that period would have gone to see you live. Exactly. Yeah. So you would have, they would have been in the audience, and all those kind of C eighty six. Because I don't, you know, there's a book by Mickey from Lush. I mean, she she often. I just read it actually. Yeah. Amazing amount of bands they would have seen, and I remember. Oh, yeah, actually, no, I didn't see that. I saw Steve once at a butthole surface gig in London in the late 80s. I think he was he was hanging about for some reason. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he would have, well, he would have been, he would have been going to all those gigs. I mean, I never really liked the butthole surface, but I know he would have been at those gigs, you know. I mean, we did. I mean, we, I used to go out, God, I'd be out virtually every night, you know. And then, you know, when you're in the band, you knew promoters, and then you could always get free tickets usually as well. Yeah. And, I, I mean, I saw Nirvana when they played... Um, with that tag, where 
Did you see them when they were supporting Tad on the Bleach tour? No, it... I don't see them. I saw them when they, I saw them when they when they were just promoting, uh, starting to promote Nevermind. So right. they, they played at what what do you call the venue on the, in the West End near Oxford Street? Oh, oh, I don't know. But I it's remember clo- they... it's knocked down now. But I mean, it, you know, it was one of those gigs where it was like medium. So it was maybe eighteen hundred people there. Um, and you know we we went to see them and it was really good you know it was like just seeing another gig but inside about another 10 weeks in they just you know every week they were selling millions and millions more and then by the end of another 10 weeks you know that that's when all the craziness started then so we just saw them when they were just really really good if you know yeah well we there was no craziness yet because they came to Norwich, they were at the Arts Centre supporting Tad in 89. Right. Then they came to the waterfront at the U, uh, yeah, yeah, in Norwich, well, and they right. didn't even sell out there, and it was not even 500 oh, really? people. Wow. And the promoter, who thought this is going to be amazing, lost so much money. But a, really? few, wow. um, a few months later, the album would have hit, and they would have been absolutely huge. But, you know, it was just timing. So he, yeah. I remember I remember his story that he didn't even, because he knew he'd lost so much money, he he didn't even watch the band. He sat by the river watching oh my the ducks God. and feeling like his life had... Yeah, because it was just like timing. It was just like, you know, that venue only holds 500 people, and they didn't even... Oh, my God. Because I saw them, it was the Astoria, and I remember, do you remember the Astoria? Yeah. Or, yeah. So, I mean, that's where they played, and that's where all, you know... All the other, you know, all the American bands coming over. I guess know, they would have had obviously was... step up from the smaller gigs. Obviously, yeah, they would have had L L seven, wouldn't they? And Jacobs Mouse supporting them at that stage. I can't remember the support, but yeah, you're probably right. Yeah, you're probably right. But it was really funny seeing them, you know. And they, you know, they just came on and they played and they were really good. I really liked. Never mind, I went out and bought it. Loved it. And it was just so funny to see how it blew up so quickly after that. Yes, I would have never. When John Peel, he was playing this uh, compilation in the late 80s called uh, Sub Pop 100. It was just yeah. one of those. kind, And it was great. It was like, oh, there, you know, there's some good stuff on there. But I would have put money that none of those bands would have made it. <laughs> well, and, then, yeah. and then Nirvana, well, obviously. Yeah. Did, you know, but um, yes. But look, coming to then what we all love at a certain age, archive in Demon Records. When did the idea come to do this amazing anthology, the 10 years of the band, which came out actually just a month ago, which was um, 121 tracks, seven CD box set. This is quite something. So when did this kind of idea come into people's consciousness? Um. We'd, we'd kind of given up thinking it was ever going to happen because it it was a lot li- for a long time it was a licensing nightmare because of all the different labels oh yes yeah that's true so that made it really difficult so that's why it had <coughs> excuse me that's why it didn't happen before now and then a few years ago now i think all the majors they must have decided you know like we've got all this stuff in the archives let's just cut our price for you know so basically i think now if you're if you say you wanted to put out um some record that was owned by phonogram in the 80s or whatever you could license it now for about a thousand pounds i think something like that it's pretty right. it's not as it's not as expensive anymore but there's this guy uh michael i'm, I'm gonna forget his bloody surname this irish guy and he basically sent us uh an email just before covid saying I'm really interested in um, getting a compilation together. I mean, he's not actually affiliated to any label, but obviously he's in contact with them. So he, so 
he got in contact and we were like, yeah, yeah, we, we'd obviously love that. And then we didn't hear from him, you know, for like, from like a year and a half. And then he came back and he said, oh, I've got a demon are interested in putting it out, you know. And so obviously demon owned uh, Manic Pop Thrill. They have the rights to that. So, and we own, we own Fireproof and we own the live record. Yes. Uh, Flame as well. So there's three. So they only had to go and license three other ones. And um, so we did a deal with Damon, and then me and Damien worked with uh, with Tony, the guy who the artist who who basically did all the artwork. We worked in tandem with him on the getting getting the booklet together, and Damon they they took the music and they remastered it. So so it sounds really really good. So we had to like, pick the tracks and stuff. So it was quite a lot of work in a way but it was good fun doing it as well me and Damien had a had good fun doing it yes and was it nice for the band <laughs> nice being a bit odd but was it nice to sort of have that kind of creative project again with the this group of people that you'd you well know, it was just with? me and Damien the rest of them weren't well Steve it's obviously Steve's in another continent so it makes things difficult but you know Kieran wasn't that fussed and Brendan I think Brendan felt because he was only in the sort of later part of the band that he didn't have such a big say in it. So Kieran's quite happy for me and Damien to do everything, you know. And what about John? Well, John, well, John like, like we're friends. I'm still friends with John, but I mean, John lives in Derry and he, like, I mean, he he sort of hasn't, he's not washed his hands of the pedals, but he's, he's not really interested in kind of, Taking part in anything really, do you know what I mean? Because we've sure. done these, we've done these, um, we've done these things online, uh, like talking about each album. I don't know if you've seen it. Oh, if you yes, go to that dot com. It's yeah. really good actually because you know people in the band are engaging and they're funny, and we still, you know, there's a lot of camaraderie there, so it's a good fun. And we talk about making of each record and what we liked and what we didn't like, blah blah blah. So they've been good fun. So we 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 kind of done all that. So. This felt like the natural extension then, uh, you know, to put out the box set. So it seems like a good time. So I'm still waiting to kind of, I'm hopeful that we'll get a bit more publicity. But yes, it ha- you know, we're, there's going to be a big article now in uh, Record Collector next month, like quite a big feature on that. So I'm looking forward to seeing that. The guy who did it, David. Yeah. He's a really nice guy. We got on really well with him. Excellent. So I'm hoping that it, that it won't just sort of die away. But, I mean, obviously, the, the best thing to do would be to kind of do some gigs to, to support it. But it just makes things really difficult with Steve being in America. And then Kieran, the drummer, is he's not sure. He, he knew, like, like, I'm 61 now. Uh, Kieran's worried that, you know, because it's like it's it's heavy duty music a lot of it it's it's difficult to play it's strenuous and it's very physical and he's not sure he's up to it anymore he's had some health issues over the years so i think i think there is a that we maybe will do some shows but we'll maybe we'll, we'll maybe scale it down a bit and we maybe kind of go more to the sort of pop side and the ballad side i would i would kind of like to do that because a lot of time there's so much energy in our live shows that it was very difficult to do the slow songs because you know everybody was pumped up and hyped up. Yes, you do the slow songs. You, you have to be, you know, you have to kind of bring it down. You have to it has to be more chilled out and whatever. And a lot of times we just couldn't do it. You know, you're lucky to get one 
sort of slow song. Whereas we, you know, I've listened to the box set again, obviously there's a lot of little gems there. We're on B-sides or third track or whatever. Like yeah. Stuff like the actual song Chemi Crazy as well, which is kind of one of the sort of fans, a fan favorite now. And it was only like a B-side. Yeah, it's a tricky one, isn't it? Yeah, because it's it's nice to see, you know, it's yeah, I mean, it's nice to see a band sort of still playing live. But um, I realise that it's not just a case of doing two rehearsals and then turning up and it all sounding okay. And um, yeah, because just getting even when we were like when we got together and when we reformed two thousand and eight, you know, it's like Steve has to come over from America, he pay for the flights, and then we had to get you know. There's a lot of kind of incidentals, and there's not much, you know, at the end of it, there wasn't much money left to get to pay ourselves, you know. So, we didn't really, I think, any money that we made individually on, on that reunion tour was used for the flights then because we did a couple of shows in America, yeah, land, and so that paid for the flights in your hotels, whatever. Do you know what I mean? So it was like, no, you know, it, didn't, it wasn't for money that we reformed, you know? No, I guess you just need a few festival dates, though that's probably a bit too Yeah, we, we probably could, you know, but, you'd, you know, it ha- would have to be worth your while, obviously. Yeah. And everybody would have to be free. Everybody's got, like, jobs and families and stuff as well. I mean, Damien's still playing with the undertones as well, so that makes things tricky as well, just not tying in with their dates as well. God, it is tricky, isn't it? I know. There's, there's, it's interesting. There's a few bands I've known, uh, speaking to, I think it's somebody from the Dance Society, where there are a, a few of them are all getting together next month in January to to do a new, you know, to do some new material. But I think everyone has that tight schedule that they all have to write, right, let's yeah, put two weeks yeah. off work and really, you know, try and get something yeah. together. So it's quite tricky. So when, after the band, just briefly, after the band then finished in sort of the mid-90s, what do you then navigate yourself through you know the next period of life because obviously it's like oh that's interesting i've got to um yeah because because like a couple of days like a couple of days after the the last show last ever show that we did which would have been the end of may uh 1994 i basically i got married in early june and then i got a job in this um radio pr company where i was being um I would have been the guy doing the sort of snappy slogans. Right. Yeah. Uh, so I was in an office for six months and I really didn't like it, you know. And then at the end of that year, Damien persuaded me to start another uh, another band again. So me and him joined forces and we wrote these songs. We were called the Wave Walkers. And we nearly got a deal with Nude Records. Yeah. But then they had fin- then they got into financial trouble, I think, and, and that didn't happen. And it just kind of fuzzled out. Like Damien was going through a divorce at the time, and you know his attention was kind of all about all of the shop. And I, I was working and then coming home and writing songs and rehearsing and stuff, and I was just exhausted as well. So that kind of, unfortunately, kind of came to an end. But then I started doing some acoustic gigs with Karen as well. So I was always writing songs. In fact, I would say I've written my best songs after the Petals broke up i really had a purple patch after we broke up which seems very ironic and very petrols as well <laughs> sort of lo- the way our luck went yeah uh, and then so then we reformed in 2008 and everybody got excited again and and steve had kind of instigated it and then we all got excited and we were actually talking about you know recording again and stuff and then his wife fell pregnant and then he decided he didn't want to do it anymore. So we were like, oh, really? You know, so we, the four of us, 
the four Irish members of the last lineup with Petrels, we formed this band called the Everlasting Yeah. And we made a, so we rehearsed and I did most of the singing and we jammed a lot of stuff and we play, we were playing gigs about 2011, 12. Yeah. And then we made a record called Anima Rising, which I'm very proud of. Probably my favorite thing of everything I've ever done, actually. Um, that was going quite well. And then like two of the band members had real um, health issues, one very, very serious. So we, we basically had to take a break for that. And then we got back together and we were doing the follow up to Anima Rising. And we went to the studio January 2020 and we did three songs, which are 90% finished. And then COVID happened. So I put the mockers on that as well. So we've just been plagued by sort of bad luck. But yes. hoping, I'm hoping next year to get a lot of stuff out. We're hoping to do a second um, Everlasting Year record. And then I'm going to do a solo project as well. I've got loads of material. So instead of waiting and trying to find people, I'm just going to put them out as demos. And, and people will know their demos. But hopefully I'll get enough interest that I can get some uh, people to play with together and go and you know do them properly or do something else. So I just want to get playing again next year. Basically, I really miss it. Yeah, oh god, that sounds amazing. Yeah, I mean, if you could have whispered something to your like sixteen-year-old self starting out, is there anything in particular you might have just said, just a bit of wisdom or or advice or direction? It's hard to say, really, because as I said to you, when I was like 22, before before I sort of started playing music seriously, I kind of thought I'd missed the boat, really, you know, so in a way, everything's been a boon. But what I think is, I like whenever the Petrels broke up, I should have really tried harder with the Wavewalkers right. to make things work. But I think it was it was just weird because whenever you're in your early 30s and you're married, <laughs> and you're not going out as much anymore. So you, you don't know the same people that you did. You know, that guy knew quite a lot of people when I was in the Petrels and single and going out all the time. You know, you know, like we knew quite a lot of people and quite a lot of the movers and shakers as well. Whereas a few years later, I didn't really know. You know, a lot of people moved on and you didn't really know people anymore. Yeah. I just wish I'd been more single minded instead of thinking, oh, you know, because the thing about it is, what I would say to anybody is if you if you're doing a musical, a music project and then it stops, it's really hard to get up for the next one again. It's just so just energy wise, it's so difficult <clears throat> because when you're in your early 20s and, you know, you're, you're single and you don't have really any responsibilities, you can you can get away with a lot more stuff, you know. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I, I had to like after, like after the Wavewalkers, you know, I, I took a job with BT. I worked for BT for about. 10 years doing different projects because you had like mobile phones and then you had the internet and stuff so I was involved with that and then I've been a translator then for like the last 12 years because that was my degree was in French and I lived in France for a while so I translate French, Spanish Portuguese and Italian that's, Right, that's my job now at the moment but that's kind of going by the wayside just, just with the internet and with uh, machine translation and stuff. Now it's very it's very hard to get people to to pay us properly because a lot of people they just won't pay for quality. You know, yeah, it's it's becoming more difficult. And there's a lot of scammers as well. People looking for translation to go online and they, it's very easy to scam them as well. So I'm I'm ready to kind of go out. I mean, it, it's been good to be able to work from home and stuff, but I kind of fancy getting out into the world again. 
so that's yeah. what I wanted to do. Blimey, God, it's it's interesting, isn't it? Having to sort of navigate these things, it's always um, it's yeah, so that provide first of all, I always have to sort of provide for my family, you know. So that's that's your first consideration, really. Yes, absolutely, that's amazing. But look, well, look, yeah, actually, I just remember when you were talking about that putting stuff out because I did an interview with Kev. I think his name's Hopper, who or Hooper. Yeah, from Stomp, he's a good friend of mine. Yeah, he's on Dimple Disc, but he, you know, he's got that solo album. And again, it's that thing of like, well, I can make all this music, but I'm not sure if you know, is it who's out there who's going to want to engage? With Kev it? was very productive. I mean, Kev's been very productive, and he's a good painter as well. I actually bought one of his paintings there just before yeah. like, last year, and. You know, it was obviously I like his painting, but it was it kind of helped him as well because I think he was getting frustrated because he he'd basically taken a sabbatical from his job, so he was you know he was devoting himself full time to doing the painting and doing the music, or whatever. But I think with his music, because it's not, you know, it's not totally accessible. It's you know anybody who listens to kind of top forty, or whatever. I think they'll find it quite a challenge and listen. So I I understand that, but you know at least he's got the label and he's got the the opportunity to. Yes, good old to, to get it out there at least. Yeah. Whereas I've, I've kept, I've kept thinking, oh, I've got to wait until this is kind of perfect. Whereas, no, I'm just like, look, a lot of stuff's demos, but you can, you know, it's still quite good. I'm quite proud of it, so I'll put it out and see what kind of reaction you get, and then, you know, hopefully it'll, it'll help me to get some other like-minded souls to play with as well. Yeah, I'm sure. And actually, I think it will be kind of a bit of a, not a slow burner, but I think people will start picking up on the box set once this week. I hope so, yeah. It would be nice. I mean, I was very disappointed. Like, Mojo did a piece, and I think it was maybe, I don't know, 70, 80 words. <laughs> How can you sum up a seven CD box set and such a limited of amount of words, you know? And the thing about it is we've never had any kind of feature in that magazine. They've never done anything with us and you see some of the people that get in there and I'm just like is there some kind of you, you, you do start I mean I'm not a paranoid person but you start thinking what what is the problem you know the petrols is a great story as well if you want to tell the story yes well actually it's interesting because I did look at the latest record collector and I was just amazed with they had so many big I just think magazines that survive i think do big articles on really not completely obscure but quite obscure artists and bands or or books and um and i think that's where people become quite committed whereas magazines i remember q magazine was just i didn't like you and mojo no. and Un uncut aren't as quite you know yeah i mean mojo no i mean like i i i stopped subscribing years ago because they just you know they're, they're just reprinting the same thing i mean how many beagles I mean, how many notes? I mean, I mean, half the half the things that they put on, you know the story, you know how it goes. It's yes. like who wants to hear this again, you know? So and then they'll do they do that thing where you know they'll review all these obscure American records, you know, they give like 30, 40 words to each one. It's like, well, what what's gonna make me listen to any of these? Do you know what I mean? I think we're where you know, it used to be when we were growing up, there wasn't such a huge amount of choice, and it was all the better for it. Yes. I think now that the amount of stuff that's been put out is just quite frightening. I would hate to be, they have to listen, you know, they, I mean, imagine it was your job to listen every week and, and try and find the gems. I mean, because I think if you listen to music and you hear a lot of mediocre or bad music, it'll put you off the good stuff almost in a way. Yeah. It's very of... hard to kind of keep your attention. 
I, I kind of missed John Peel because he was the person. Oh, I absolutely, kind of, yeah. I kind of trusted his kind of, you know, he curated his show, wouldn't he? And I kind of felt like he would have got the best reggae record, the best rap record, the best indie, the best yeah. Bulgarian folk, the best African. Definitely, definitely. And just kind yeah. of put it on one show. So you thought, oh, yeah. that's interesting. Even if I didn't really want to go and buy it, I thought at least I've heard probably what I think he would consider to be the best record. Um, so, I know oh, I totally. I mean, his show. I mean, from seven, I would say from seventy six to seventy nine. I think once I went to university, I I just didn't listen to him so much. Not because I didn't like him, but just because you were busy doing all their stuff, you know. And yeah. then I came back to him about eighty three or so again, and listened to him then for a good few years. Then after that as well. So yeah, and I mean, you could just tell that he loved what he was doing, you know, and he would give things a chance as well. Yes, I know. I used to like John Waters used to say, John, he would, John Waters, the producer, he would say, um, John Peel would probably listen to those records at home. Whereas John Waters said, I would often like the idea of the record and, and think yeah. it should get heard, but yeah. I probably wouldn't go home and play it. Whereas John Peel Absolutely, probably did. Yeah. And I kind of thought that was probably true. And he also said, if John Peel ever reaches puberty, we're all in trouble. And he, and he did have that kind of, <laughs> kind of ear of a 16 year old that you know he's like oh I just want to hear that you know and play it to death you know and then hear the next thing and I think that's also kind of quite true really so um yeah no I mean but you think about it I mean there was nobody else like John Peel really I mean on Radio 1 the closest to John Peel was maybe was who kid, would have been the closest to John Peel? There was Kid Jensen and Janice Long. Who yeah, was Kid like, Jensen and Janice Long would have been the two, really. Yeah, yeah. And then, but and, and uh, then Mark, Tom, Good, Mark Goodyear, maybe. Tommy Van, Tommy Vance on a Friday night, heavy metal. Yeah, well, you, you know the thing about the heavy metal is you have to you have to really take your hat off to the heavy metal people. They're they're so um, they're so loyal actually to their groups as well. You know, if somebody if one of them makes a, a record that's not that great, they're like, oh well, there's always the next one. Do you know what I mean? It's like, yes. Whereas you know the kind of hipsters, they're like, oh, you know, if somebody mess if some band has you know, two good records and a, a dodgy one, they've just kind of completely forgotten about them and they're disdainful and you know they ruin their confidence as well. Most you know because that that's the thing people. These critics, I mean, I think it's really sad that the the music press had to die. But I think at at one stage they had far too much power. And I mean, you know, some new bands starting off, they were just kind of crucifying them immediately before they'd even done anything. So if you think like some of the best music that I think that's come out the last 20, 25 years or whatever, is stuff where it's been allowed to grow away from the limelight. Do you know what yeah. I mean? And it's like you think about. I'm thinking specifically now, bands late, mid to late nineties. You know, they were crucified. You know, after three gigs or whatever, if they weren't uh, measuring up to whatever the critics. But, that, but then you get people like I think it was the Soup Dragons who were like, you know, giving like this is the best band ever, and they, I think they'd only put out one single or not even a single. <laughs> it was like they kind of was a bit weird, and they? they were a bit psych. They're a bit sort of schizophrenic, weren't they? The music press at times. They they, oh, they, they were just desperate. Always they were always desperate to get the next big thing. And because they were weekly, it had to be weekly as well. Because yeah. I mean, you know, we we obviously had our kind of moment with the press. And then I was I remember like the enemy did a review of End the Millennium Psychosis Blues, and they give it eight stars out of ten, which you think, well, that's good. But the review read like a like a death notice almost. You know, like it was the death of the band. It was just so bizarre. I remember reading it and thinking, you know, we haven't broken up. What is this review? You know, it's just bizarre. 
Yes, this is true. I they think were kind I of think... second guessing, you know, because you know they obviously they didn't really understand what we were trying to do. I mean, I think people have a better idea now because, as you say, once because we were on the kind of dance thing early, and we we weren't even that, you know, we were like big decision was kind of influenced by dance, but not that not that much not not that many other of our songs were were dance orientated. You know, it was still mm-hmm. pretty much like kind of straight ahead. Like our thing, really, if you think about. The Petrels are our two main influences were the Beatles and the Stones, still really. Yeah. You know, the melody. We want melody and energy and you know, we want the memorable as well. You know, we we didn't want to be avant-garde. I mean, we like Peribu, but we like the kind of poppier stuff of Peribu. We weren't so we weren't trying to do the more outre stuff. Do you know what I mean? Yes, absolutely. No, it's interesting. We it's wanted good. to be pop, you know, we wanted to be popular. I'm I'm always disappointed we're not played more on Radio 6. You know, it's always the same two songs that they seem to play. And you think now there's 121 songs there and they probably still play the same two songs as well. Yeah, no, it's uh, it has been great to um to get the box set actually because it does give you a kind of an idea of the 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 depth of the band and and the progress and the transition between one and the other. So it's it's yeah, been, you know, plus, it's kind of it's kind of interesting, actually, on that front. And then you know, the booklet as well, because, you know, we were always portrayed as these kind of der politicals as well, which is not true at all. I mean, obviously, we were we did talk about politics and that was important to us. But, you know, whenever we were out together, we weren't sitting around talking about politics. We were out having a good time, you know? Yes, absolutely. So that's why I really like the booklet. You know, it's got a lot of Damien's photographs of, of that time, you know, and... They're just great. You can see how much we were, you know, we were young and enjoying ourselves and smiling and having fun. You know, it's not sitting around. And also, you get John Harris to do the the sleeve notes as well. Yeah, that was a lovely, a lovely turn of events. Uh, it's actually all down to um, uh, Phil Wilson's wife, Pam. Oh, so okay. Pam is she's a kind of counselor down in Buckfastly where they live down. Um, down in the southwest, yeah, and she had met John through um, through him doing an article on on her becoming a counselor because she's really stirred things up down there. She, you know, she's been really, really good. She's a very determined person and a very a very wonderful person. And she got talking to him, and and you know, like we we like we are still good friends with the Jim Brides. We were like when we were going as a band, you know that. The only other band, really, who I would go and see on a regular basis and, and be friends with was the Jim Brides for the time that they were going. And, and then John Hunter, for example, who's the trumpet player, he worked with the Pedrals for years. He was our driver and roadie and stuff as oh, well. Oh, excellent. So Pam knew John Harris. And uh, so whenever the time came to do the booklet, I, I was going to write an essay. And then I thought, no, I'm not writing anymore about the band. I want somebody else to do this. So I thought I'll ask the fans. So I put a thing on Facebook asking the fans to write something and I was going to compile the best of what they wrote. So apparently Pam saw this and she got in contact with she she knew that John Harris was a Petrels fan. If you look at John Harris's Twitter, he's got a he's got the photograph of us with the glasses, you know, with the writing on yeah, it. That's, yeah. his, that's his Twitter picture. And uh, he was a big fan. So Pam said to me, look. John Harris is a big fan. Why don't you ask him? You know, why don't you ask him to do the notes? And I was like, okay, I will. And I, I know I got in contact with him, and he was really up for it. You know, and yes. so he did them, and he he did such a fantastic job. Because I mean, he, he was kind of 
he was he was sort of the, the because of the space of the the booklet he was told it was only going to be a certain amount of words and i thought i would hit somebody telling me you know it's got to be two thousand words or whatever it is because that would really restrict me but he loved it because i mean he's used to doing it with a guardian yeah. obviously he has to, his piece has to be a certain length and he, he just managed to get everything in as well it was just extraordinary so we're hoping to meet him so obviously he got a box set he got and he actually got paid now by um uh, ed sell as well got him some money but i'm going to meet up with him he's going to come and meet the band when the next time he's up in london we're all going to go out for a meal because you know we, i really love his writing and his journalism you know he's just one of those people who he seems to have common sense you know which is not that common obviously no but and i loved his he did politics. a book on brit pop as well which i thought was yeah he did i must i must get hold of that actually because i've never read it i read it's the creation one i read david Kavanagh's one about creation right and um but no john's done a really good one which captured a period in the 90s so. oh, he's a great writer yeah he's a really he's just a really straightforward person as well that's what i really liked about him he's just and then we did um we did another one of these online online things and he hosted the last one actually excellent god that was good so so he, he's had some kind of interaction with us as well but yeah everyone we were really happy to get him to do it you know and to do such a good job i think I got really emotional actually when when I read his slave notes. I just thought, you just that's just perfect. Amazing. Nobody could have done a better job than that. That's just fantastic. Nice, nice. Well, look, this has been fantastic. And if you want, I can always send you the link to this, and then you can always post it if you want. I um, will, I will, of course, I will. Yeah, of course, I'll fantastic. post it everywhere for you. Yeah, but yes, absolutely. but thank you for your time. This has been amazing. my pleasure. Pleasure to meet you. Thank you very yes. much indeed. And uh, take care. And uh, yes, all, all the, the best. best. You. See you later. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Indeed, that's just rock and roll finishing there. Um, I know, I loved leaving that last bit in. But uh, massive thank you to Raymond Gorman from That Petrol Motion for giving me the time for that interview. As I mentioned earlier, uh, it's a seven-CD box set that's come out on Demon Records, That Petrol Motion. It is absolutely brilliant. And if there's records or albums that you missed the first time, they sound amazing the second. So, um, yes, do check it out. And I think they've got a Facebook page and uh, a website as well. So do sign up and hopefully we'll be hearing more from them throughout the year. This has been the C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just do C86 Show. Keep it positive and groovy. And also, all these have been archived, these interviews. So you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. It's true. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe. <laughs>